Cosmic Reality Radio is sponsored by Mystical Wares Online Store, the world's largest inventory of Shungite products and energy devices, where coupon code SAVE10 will get you 10% off your entire order. Visit us at mysticalwares.com. All orders over $100 will automatically receive a free one-ounce bag of small Shungite nuggets. Welcome to Radio 5G, where we sort fact from fiction, conspiracy from falsehood, reality from the unknown. And by doing so, we change the collective consciousness of humanity. A production of CosmicReality.com Welcome to Radio 5G's Cosmic Soup Show to be aired on January 17th, 2024. Today is a Tucker Carlson Day. Tucker has hosted primetime programs on CNN, PBS, MSNBC, and the Fox Network, Fox News Network, where he was the most popular host on Fox, and Fox is currently the most popular news channel. When you search for the truth, you will likely find it. For so many of us, the truth shattered our learned perceptions on what was real and what was truth. Tucker was fired from Fox after sharing too many uncomfortable facts. He now started his own news network at TuckerCarlson.com. His Tucker Carlson network is continually updated with interviews from people who often will not be allowed on any established, quote, mass media. The network requires subscription, but Tucker has taken the most informative and put them up on his Rumble station and often on X. This series of three Tucker interviews are on his Rumble station, Tucker Carlson. The first interview is titled The Climate Lie with Willie Soon. Dr. Soon is a Malaysian astrophysicist and aerospace engineer employed as a part-time externally funded researcher at the Solar and Stellar Physics Division of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. For most of us, we realize the climate crisis is a ploy to bring down civilization. Dr. Soon puts out simple facts that provides there is such a thing as climate lie. He is an example of a true scientist who simply follows the facts. The second interview is with Congressman Clay Higgins, providing an account of what actually happened on January 6th. And the third interview is with Mark Epstein, brother of Jeffrey Epstein, talking with Tucker about his brother's mysterious death. Pretty obvious, Tucker is still searching for the truth and still finding it. In the United States, we often refer to our main sources of energy as fossil fuels. Oil, natural gas, coal, they're fossil fuels because they come from fossils. Ancient organic material, forests, jungles, plankton, dinosaurs. Held under the ground for millennia, they transform into oil, gas, and coal. Everybody thinks that's true. On the other hand, there's evidence that maybe it's not the whole story. If that's where fossil fuels come from, if that's how hydrocarbons are made, 
then how come they're found so deep under the oceans and at the top of the Earth? How come one of Saturn's moons, according to scientists, has more oil and natural gas than Earth? Were there dinosaurs and planktons and forests at one point on one of Saturn's moons? Probably not. So if all hydrocarbons aren't from fossils, where are they from? And why isn't this commonly known? And what are the implications of it? And what does it tell us about our modern climate change policy? These are not just esoteric questions. They're central questions, actually, as we chart the future of energy usage in the world. Willie Soon has been thinking about this for a long time. He's an astrophysicist, a geoscientist. He spent 31 years at Harvard. He recently left, and he joins us here. Dr. Soon, thank you so much. Thank you, Tucker. I appreciate it. It's a blessing to be able to come on your show. Well, it's a blessing to have you. And this is such an interesting question with so many implications. Um, Yes. And I want to spend most of our time talking about the implications. But just to the strict question of where hydrocarbons come from, it sounds like they're not necessarily all from ancient forests or plankton or dinosaurs, are they? Yes. Uh, The story can be a bit long, so give me a few minutes to explain. You are certainly right, but most important to clarify is that the information that is found on the largest moon on, on Saturn, which is called Titan, yes. is actually results from NASA, European Space Agency, yes. and then the Italian Space Agency, who built this spacecraft called Cassini and Huygen. Actually, one of my thesis advisor committee is actually built the UV spectrometer, but the one that they used to discover this Basically, the ocean liquid, liquid form of methane, which is in ethane form, which is much more complicated hydrocarbon, is whole ocean of it. Because Titan is in such a way that it's very cold, by the way. So it's minus 290 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes. Hint, hint, hint. Where's the global warming there, right? If it's full of methane there, right? That's another problem because it's far away from the sun. That's what it is. Yes. And clearly that the question of a biogenic method, which means don't you no need of any biology, is true. Because we know actually one experimental experiment was done in 2009. It was done in Swedish uh, Royal Academy, one of those uh, group, but it's done by one Russian leader. He was able to show that if you squeeze methane, CH4 in chemical formula, so four hydrogen, one carbon, squeeze them in a form that in which they simulate the condition of the earth mantle, which is 1,800 miles deep yes. kind of below the surface, because the earth is deeper, right? And it's within this 18, but basically the condition that is only about 40 to 150 miles in, that you actually can form complex hydrocarbon. You got benzene, you got ethane, you got all these other stuff yes. forming. So that proved beyond doubt that you have such a way to make this. Plus that Titan proved beyond doubt. You actually see Methane also. In all the atmosphere of Jupiter, you know, you even find benzene in the rocks of uh, Mars. And then for me, astrophysicists, I can tell you even more. You find this complex hydrocarbon called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon. It's another one of those complex hydrocarbon. Then actually you found it in interstellar space, between space within stars, intergalactic space. These are everywhere because temperature there are cold. And probably the right pressure condition, all this well, so, complex hydrocarbons. Well, that's, it's kind of incredible because all of us, and including myself until very recently, right. assumed that all of our main energy sources are these so-called fossil fuels. And of course, their existence is going to be 
limited by the amount of fossils, by the amount of decaying organic right. material. Not so. So if that's not so, then we need to rethink a lot of things. A lot. I think I think this one fit into a paradigm by a famous uh, economist that I like very much. His name is uh, uh, Simon. Do you know about this guy named Simon? Julian Simon. Julian Simon. Yeah, the key guy. You see of uh, Illinois and then Maryland. He was the said. He was the guy who said that the ultimate resource of humanity or Earth is actually not all this material thing like uranium gold because uranium. There are far more uranium in the oceans than on the land, right? You have 4.5 billion tons of uranium in the ocean. You have only 17 million tons of that. Gold, uh, copper. <laughs> what, what, what do you want on the ocean? It's all there except they're in very dilute form. Yes. Clearly. So the ultimate resource actually is not that. It's the human mind. It's, it's the innovation part of it. I think I like that principle a lot. It fits very well in terms of saying that it's all matter of course. Even oil. Most, I don't know if any, any of you know, the audience know that 50 to 60% of the, the, I mean, all, all, actually all the oil that you already drilled, the drill hole, there, you can only pull out 40 to 50% of it. 60% of that remains in it because simply because there's not enough pressure to get it yes. out. This is why the, the idea of abiogenic oil is interesting. It's true, clearly true. It's all matter of course, really. Because this thing has to form way inside the, uh, the earth, the mantle, which is 50 to 100, 100 miles, right? Human, how deep have we ever drilled? Only the skin, which is only five miles maximum, five to, you know, six miles, basically. That's at most that we can drill. And then all this stuff had to permeate into the reservoir. I, I got this information from the top people that physically have to look for oil every day. One of my friends, Joseph Lime Cooler from uh, Beacon uh, Energy, Offshore Energy. Those are the guys who work day in and day out to bring us the energy, actually, the oil that we need. So why why don't most people know this? Why do most people think that the, the gasoline in their car was, by definition... Have to be limited, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that there's a, that there's just a tiny amount and it's it's going away. We'll never oh, find the, more. The world is full of untruth and half truths, right? That's the whole problem, right? That's why for so long, even the idea that we are not limited and bounded by availability of, uh, let's say, gasoline, petroleum, or, or coal. Coal now they won't allow us to use, right? As you know, in COP meeting in Dubai that just ended a day ago, they just physically declared themselves that we should stop using fossil fuel, basically petroleum natural gas, and even coal. I mean, these people are insane now, really insane. I think they're going to harm more people with their own delusion. Plus, they always remember, these are people who actually don't represent the majority. No. Since when are this put up to word? It's always about this minority, the tyranny of the few, always robbing the whole census, the good census of the good people. This is part of the reason why, as a scientist, I also speak out. Feel, I mean, not afraid of anything except for just telling the truth. And I'm glad to have this opportunity to say such thing in, in your show. So, I mean, if we haven't been told the truth about where hydrocarbons come from, right. and we haven't, I mean, I've never met a single person in my life who said, wait mm -hmm. a second, they're not all fossil fuels, then we keep hearing there's a scientific consensus on climate change. Oh, Every right. scientist believes the same thing about it, believes Al Gore and John Kerry. Maybe that's not true either. Oh, that I can tell you, please. Thank you for asking that question, Tucker. I've been working on this subject of CO2 causing climate change or what other factors we can ask that cause climate to change. 
for close to as long as since my postdoctoral year 1991, right? So it's about 32, 31 years, 32 years. And on this question, I think we have a very definitive answer. What we know now is CO2 ain't going to cost nothing. It's not going to change much of the climatic system, which means it won't change the speed of the hurricane. It won't change the how fast or how frequent tornado form. It won't, it, it won't even actually make any difference to the polar bear population. It's all conservation issue, right, on polar bear. It won't even cause how much fish you don't catch or catch, you know. It won't even cause what they call ocean acidification. It won't even cause this problem that they claim. It's all artificial. Everything they do, it's all dream from their model and the tyranny of the few again. That those few people just dream up this scary story that it just ain't true. And then when you come down to the most responsible group for this kind of uh, bad stuff, I, I, I was reminded by my colleague, Dr. Ronan Connolly and Michael Connolly, uh, my two co-worker with me on my group, is to say that since, you know, since I worked so carefully and I have about more than a hundred scientists last three years alone working with me, so I don't speak on behalf of them, I speak on behalf of myself. My view is that the UNIPCC, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is one of the primary problems, which means they have been misleading people. They've been using authority of science, which is not true, right? It's all governmental hackers, basically, right? People like John Kerry, who I guess can barely take a, a proper physics class, who keep claiming that greenhouse effect is so simple, right? And then uh, he refused to explain how does it work. Right? I mean, he did all of that that is very terrible. That really embarrassing to America. He did that in Bali in Indonesia several years back. That is just so embarrassing. Do you think he can explain how it works? No, I don't think so. Even Al Gore, who claimed to be, know something about science. I challenge Al Gore. I, I did some of that to, with, in, in his face, actually. I have, I was lucky enough to be in one of those Wall Street Journal eco conference and I was giving, you know, setting up with all the UC Santa Barbara students, please make sure when the question comes out, give me the mic. Oh, I was making friends with them the night before. I explained now my details of my work. So <laughs> I, I got the mic and I asked question about El Gore because one of the primary sad things that they refuse to recognize, that I know you know that in, in even grade school uh, sciences, CO2 is a gas of life. It, when you have more CO2, the plant kingdom, the whole ecology, even the oceans, gonna have more, basically, ability, more fishes, more everything. More life. More life, essentially. That's why it's called gas of life. And these people want to demonize it as some gas that can cause global warming, can cause hurricane to run faster or weaker. I don't know what they want. To have more rain, more droughts, and all these other nonsense that they claim. All of that, it just ain't so. That's the problem. By the way, this is how serious I am. I check everything they say. I check. As a scientist, you cannot just dismiss them. You cannot laugh at them. You cannot, you know, chide them. You cannot just make joke of them. You check everything. So as a very serious scientist, and I publish scientific papers refuting all of these arguments. Scientific papers maybe mean nothing to the average people, but it's really important. It's like a document that you have to document and then put out the proper scientific arguments about what is right, what is wrong. So that's what we have been doing at, at my particular center called series-sign.com. So anybody who wants more information about this, please go to the website, right? And study what we do there because we are the one that is truly independent from any funding agency, any money that you could possibly give me. 
like like Bill Gates, please don't give me money, thank you. And oh, Al Gore, please don't give me money. Oh, don't give me any money if you tell me what to do. You know, even some of your money, I might not want it. But the point is that I want to be independent, just like you. In the media, I want to be fearless. I just set my own agenda. You don't tell me what to research either. I research what I want to research. So we've been researching on many, many topics. So on the climate change issue, I'm fully convinced. After all these years, even though we may not know exactly what is causing climate change, we suspect it's the sun. We have a lot of evidence to show that it's probably the sun. Very high percentage, you know, like was, I would say 90% were sure, but not 100%. But we know carbon dioxide is not the gas, it's not the, what you call the, like your thermometer in your room can adjust up and down that you can set the temperature to be whatever level you want it. First of all, they can never tell us what temperature do they want it at. What is the temperature you want to set the global temperature? Al Gore has not been able to answer that. John Kerry has not been able to answer that. Because we know the temperature from the coldest in Siberia to the desert in Sahara. I mean, these are huge, at least a hundred degree or more kind of differences. Yes. I mean, who are you to tell me which temperature is the correct temperature where you guys are talking like that? They are talking as if they are pseudo-God, they're God themselves. I mean, these people are so ambitious that in some sense, I think we have to keep their ambition down a little bit. I mean, these people are not contented, just like what you put out there. If you're, you cannot be ambitious when you're contented. But these people are so out of their mind in some sense that I think it's misleading. And somebody had to speak out against them. I think you are one of those who consistently point out their hypocrisy, right? And I really find that the whole problem of this global warming is a complete nothing, which means we should do nothing about it. Just go on and live life and adapt to it, right? So what I, here's, uh, of course I agree completely, but here's what I don't understand. Global temperatures have dramatically fluctuated within. Yes the period that humans left records. I mean, right. not that long ago. I mean, yes. there are cities underwater because sea levels have risen within yes. recorded history. Mm-hmm. The signs of the glaciers are all around us. Yes. So that was all before the internal combustion engine. How do they explain that? This is this is the problem. They they admitted. A lot of them admitted. They willingly admitted. You can read all. But you the can't literature. deny it. I mean, no, we had they, glaciers they, and then they, they, they melted because they of are forced to confess. I mean, these are the confession time. Is the sun actually that does a lot of this? The glacier, like like there's a period called Little Ice Age. Yeah. You know, from uh, about not thirteen hundred to nineteen hundred, where you know very cold, and then there's a middle warm period from eight hundred eighty to about twelve hundred. You know, it was warm. I mean. You can grow wine in England, right? And now you cannot grow wine, right? Things like that. I mean, Greenland was green back then. Yes. But now it's full of glaciers. Ice is coming in. So what are you talking about exactly? And it was the sun, actually. The sun fit quite well. As far as we know, in terms of deduct, deducing the information of how does the sun, how, how bright was it, how dim was it? Basically, just like that. Just the amount of light coming out from the sun. Very tiny percentage, by the way. Very small. It's on the order of less than a percent, but it's more than enough because there's another effect that is very, very important. It's basically because the sun, the earth is forced to go around the sun and then the orbit change ever so slightly because of perturbation from all the other planets. Yes. You know, Jupiter, Saturn, and even Venus and Mars, they are actually controlling what we do. And the moon, of course, is very important. But that other factors, the orbits, plus the changes of the sun by itself, between how bright how, how dim it is. These two factors can explain just about everything that we know. 
all the data that I have, actually. So I've been start. This is why I was so fascinated in in studying this issue. I spent my whole life actually studying this, nothing but doing just this. And the more I understand, the more I think that wow, it's just a gap to be filled in. We have too much information that, and then these people come along say that CO2 is causing everything. I check, I check. Oh, maybe they're right. I check. As a scientist, I have to check them. But then it's not even close. I mean, these people are talking about things that is. I mean, you. <laughs> There's a famous phrase by a very famous、uh, Wisconsin meteorologist. His name is Professor Reed Bryson. He's、uh, one of the father of climatology. Really, he just say that you go out and then you could might as well if you think CO2 is so, you might as well spit into the air and see what happened to the airflow. <laughs> he was just basically saying that CO2 is nothing, cannot cause the climate to change or, or anything. It doesn't change anything actually. It's the sun. Why? Why you think the most important things that you should talk about? They never talk about that. They always want to average the data. The most important thing they should talk about, you know what? It's the season. Every no two winter are the same, no two summers are the same, and they never explain it. It's actually the orbits with the sun changing it ever so slightly. I am not talking. I have published papers, papers and papers and papers like that on all this to show and document why and how. That's what the fun part of doing science. It's not only not chatting, hand waving like crazy. <laughs> you have to be, even though I may look like one now, but. I am always very calm when you write down. You know, like my every time I have to write a paper, I always tell my wife, "Please don't disturb me for a few days. I'll be back." <laughs> Things like that. Of course, working at home, but、uh, this is, I'll be back. <laughs> so, is there any way to predict what climate change will be based on? Actually, you can、sun? because of the orbit. The only thing we don't know is how to predict the sun changes by itself because the magnetism, you know, just the magnetic field on the sun is too complicated. The sun is the magnetized ball, right? It's a gas, hot gas. It's about you know the the magnetic field is so strong it's ten thousand times stronger than the Earth. The Earth is also a magnet, a bar magnet basically. Yes. It's one Gauss. We have ten thousand Gauss at least on the Sun. So it's a very different property, and it works very differently because it it, it heated by basically a thermonuclear reaction inside the Sun. So it created all kinds of hot gas behavior that is very difficult to to try to master or even to model using mathematical equation. Actually, it's much easier to study the Earth than to do the Sun. So that's part of the problem in in scientific task, the physics task. It's very difficult. But then we learn a lot. We learn a lot through just watching the sun. I mean, Galileo Galilei, right? He pointed his telescope. He he, he was smart enough. First, he pointed to Jupiter, to the moon, right? Jupiter. Then he saw the moon, right? He saw four moons around it, and then he's smart that he go the next day to watch it again. He watched, and then he says started to move. By the way, the famous story of Galileo Galilei. We、we'll、talk about it someday. When he wrote that down, initially it was in Italian. When he realized he discovered something so unique, he changed the language to Latin. <laughs> the next day, yeah, you know, I got it, man, the good one. You know, so he started writing in Latin, precise language. Okay, but anyway,、uh, for the sun, it's really so complicated that actually I've been studying this actually as long as you know me. I mean, I studied this for so long. We know a lot. I even wrote a popular book actually to try to explain. Why that during a period of the sunspot? So Galileo Galilei start in 1609, 1610 or so. So we have about now 413 years of data. But there's a period that deep inside the little ice age, 1645 to 1715, is called the Monda Minimum, because during that period, the sunspot almost all disappear, especially in the northern hemisphere. It disappear completely. Nobody know why. And that's why 
the French astronomer, famous people like Cassini, the one that the Cassini spacecraft, he was observing at that time. He said, man, this Galileo guy must be on either drinking too much or lying or things like that. He said there's a lot of sunspots, but we observe at this time, we didn't see nothing. What's wrong? But it's an actual phenomenon, right? My, my friend, my good friend, which is the number one world sunspot historian, he just wrote email to me, Douglas Hoyt. He actually was the master of this, collecting all the sunspot data, going back to all the major libraries, you know, from Galileo first point all the way to present point. Basically found that this phenomenon is true because during that period, the sunspot was not there, not because nobody was watching. There was at least observed 80% of the time during the 70 years. You see, it's so unique, that period. But now we're beginning to try to learn what happened there. So during that period, we really think that the sun was so much dimmer, was substantially dimmer. This is why you have this little ice age phenomenon. All the Thames River were froze. You know, we have the Thames River in England, well known, and then all the ice skating thing, you know, the in Holland, all the, yes. all the different culture. And then these are all real, actual phenomenon. And then this day, they're trying to say that, Maybe little ice age is not little ice age. They even try to change that in scientific field, actually. So this was very, very puzzling for me. Why would they try and change that? Oh, I don't know, because they want to say that CO2 is controlling everything. They kind of want to have CO2 as the prime driver of everything. This is part of the problem that I find. Well, that's not science. That's lying. Ah, it's bad. It's bad in science. This is why I, in science now, I rather say this thing outright. I want, I rather have questions that cannot be answered than answer that cannot be questioned. Because these people are just offering you the answer and then you should just shut up like you say. Don't ask any question. Don't criticize. Don't even bother to think. Just accept what we say. I mean, you may have known that this, actually, if you want to get, get there, I can talk about this because this is rather famous because the other person is still around. He's the one who's shouting up and down these this two, last two days to say that, oh, we must stop fossil fuel. GOP is so evil. We must stop all of them because we are the GOP are the evil uh, political bodies in America that causes all this fossil fuel to be, we are using fossil fuel and all that. His name is Professor Michael Mann. He's at University of Pennsylvania. Yes. He created a paper. We call it the hockey stick. You know? Yes. The stick paper. The hockey stick. He basically say that the temperature history, first of all, the true temperature history looked like this. That it was very warm from 800 AD, let's say warm, warm, and then it cools down, about 1300 started to go down, cool. And then since about 1900 century, it started to warm back up. Way, way before CO2 is important, okay? That's another puzzle that they never want to explain. That looked like this. That's the real story. Michael Mann came along, said that, well, he used mathem mathematical algorithm, okay? You can use fancy words, but believe me, it's just mathematical algorithm that he produced a stick for 880 to about 1980 is all flat because it changed. It changed very tiny amount. So small that actually it doesn't mean anything. 0.1 or 0.2 degrees Celsius, so small. It doesn't mean the one that I talk about that changes one degree at least, you know, so five, six times strong, bigger than what he say. And then he just say it is like this and then it warm up because of like a, the blade which is the warming because of rising carbon dioxide. But he forgot to explain to you, this, this warming of the temperature started way before even the human part of the atmospheric carbon dioxide could be anything meaningful. This is part of the problem. It's all been crazy from day one. When, I, when this thing was published in uh, 1999, I was the first few guy who raised a hand at the back of the class and said, Excuse me, Professor Man. he used to be my friend, by the way. Now he will never answer me. He used to exchange email with me because 
you know, we more or less share the same passion, want to understand things. Now he just say that his story, his story is the only one that is correct. But it's not bared out by any data that we know. That's the problem. It's all mathematical products. This is how scary the whole world can be. And United Nations, the IPCC group that I mentioned, promoted his work, turned him into a major hero because he has solved one of these old puzzle problems that climatologists over millennia has been trying to solve since the day of the Greeks to try to understand how climate change. And this guy come along, say that it looked like this, only CO2 does it. And that's the problem. So, I mean, it just ain't so. What, what, what you're, I mean, some of this is very complex, but in the way you're describing it, if he's saying the warming period began before there was a meaningful addition of CO2 into the atmosphere caused by humans, yes. even I can understand that. Yes, right? that's, that's the truth. So I would assume that lots of scientists who do this for a living might be asking the same question. Why don't they speak up? This is the problem. The whole Problem in science this day is related to funding. How science is funded. That natural, that philosophy, I wish to not get too much into it. This is part of the reason why I want to be totally independent. I get out of this whole system, right? But it's how science is, is about funding. Even if you don't get money directly, it will influence the graduate students and on and on and so forth. All these other related effects, you know? And many people are afraid to speak out. But I tell you, if you really put all the scientists to an honest kind of polling, if you science, but science is not about polling too. All it takes is one to be correct. Yes. That's the problem, right? Einstein used to, when he formulated the famous general relativity or special relativity, actually, that was criticized. That, that basically talk, talk about speed or light is constant. So time and space are relative. Yes. Right? Time can be dilated. Space is also slightly different because the speed of light is constant. Special relativity is based on that concept. Then 100 of these Berlin academicians tried to wrote a pamphlet, say that Einstein is wrong, but never offer why. What is the details that is wrong? And then Einstein indeed answered like this. Why would you need a 100? You know, if I were to be wrong, one would suffice. I mean, that's, a, that's the theme <laughs> of the science. Science is so bad because it's so totally upside down, inside out. COVID is another case, you know. So let's stick to climate stuff. People are afraid to speak out. I don't know why, actually. I was young. I had to worry about my three kids, where they eat and all that stuff. You know, buffet all the time. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest American invention. <laughs> all you can eat. This is truly entrepreneur, by the way. Anyway, we have enough food. No problem. That's why food, I don't think, is also a problem in this world. Even material resources, right? All you think is have to think like Julian Simon type. You know? We can generate everything. The only problem we have is lack of imagination, narrow-mindedness, and all this anti-America sentiment, put it this way. America is among the best hope for humanity, you know, to put forward. We have the foundation document, the constitution, for God's sake. That is the most beautiful thing that we could ever imagine. And why don't we use it properly, right? People are just trashing on it every day, right? Anyway, I digress. <laughs> anyway, so yes, I, I think... Science is a problem now because of funding structure. People won't speak out. I don't know why. I think it's natural for people to be afraid, but you can only be afraid for so long. For me, I was frustrated because I was not afraid ever since I was in science. Because I'm in science because I love science. This is why, from my own perspective, I'm just very sad to see that science is being trampled by all these other non-science forces. You know, That's why when I look at COVID also, I cannot stand by and say nothing. 
on COVID-19, there are so many things wrong with it. That's why I want to pre-advertise. With my group, series.sign.com, we work with a bunch of people. One of the good guests for you, potential, will be Professor Harvey Rich. He said he'd been interviewed by you twice. Yes. Even guys like Bob Malone, we work together, produce a paper. So when the paper come out, hopefully we can have them on your show so that yes. they can tell more stories. We want to provide the medical community or even the world to document this episode of dark ages in, in medical sciences. Something went terribly wrong. The mask never really worked. The vaccine never really worked. All of this doesn't work. The lockdown doesn't work. And what are we doing this? Now they are trying to scare with another news scare. All over the world now. Newspaper. This morning I just got one newspaper from my sister whose heart to start there. Oh, they start masking up in Malaysia now because cases started to increase. <laughs> the usual story. I laugh in a serious way because I see this is another one of those attempts again to try to scare people. So I did digress now. Science is just so complicated now that Every aspect of the science that I look at, I've become very unhappy. Science is no longer able to do where science leads. This is the theme of my series, that science.com. We, with few only colleagues, I don't have enough funding. I just hope to get as many donations, by the way. Donate, but don't tell us anything. Do anything. Trust us, because we are decent scientists. You can look at our publication record that we are able to produce the most interesting and pure work. Like IPCC, they have to reply to us. Two years ago, we published a very important paper. One of my journalist friends, a colleague, wrote a paper, newspaper article, and then he go and ask IPCC, why are you guys not citing this paper? They use the excuse to say that, oh, these people publish late. We have a deadline here, red line. Oh, if you don't publish before some date, like 2021, okay, like January or 2021, then we won't include your work. So we published in August, so they wouldn't include my work. But they forgot to say that, they, are, they claim themselves, they proclaim, UN, IPCC proclaim themselves to be the best of the scientific world, produce the most updated and all that. But immediately, their report came out, they already outdated because they haven't included my work, which is the most comprehensive review of how the sun affects the climate. That's the work we did. So this, this year, just two months ago, we published two more papers convincingly show that even the thermometer data that they show you it's, it's not what it is. It's actually not measuring climate. It's measuring urban heat island changes. Something that I think everybody can understand. If you go to the inner part of the big city, like TC is one of the best examples. I have graph to show that. You go there, inner city is much warmer than outside because of concrete retaining all the heat or you change all the surfaces or the, you know, the surface become impervious, which means there's no breathing, no water yes, going in yes. and out, things like that. And it's, what we show is that it's not a phenomenon just on local sun. You average over this, you can see the effect all over the northern hemisphere. This is very powerful new work that we, we so spend. So concrete and asphalt raise the temperatures more than CO2. And that's what they're measuring. And then they tell you this is global temperature. And then we provide an alternative. We say, why don't we go look at rural station that is available? And guess what our result found? Completely different story from, from the picture, the narrative that's coming out from this data set, thermometer data that show, that combine urban and rural. Okay? We show rural only. We can tell you that you can immediately offer a different answer. For example, it's the sun that does it, that does it. We show that. But we don't know that is the answer. We just simply show you that the IPCC and all these so-called scientists from NASA, NOAA, and all of them are not doing their due diligence. They are putting you 
very bad quality data product. Not only that, they hide it. Some of them is so difficult to get the data. Okay, we but it should never be difficult to get data. I'm sorry, Tucker. This is how the problem in science now is so many serious. But I thought transparency of data was science. I was hoping. I always believe in that. That's why everything that we publish is there because we got it from somewhere. Here's the data. Use it. Check us. If we're wrong, tell us we're wrong. That is one thing that I can always promise you. I'm not here to try to gain favor or anything. If I'm wrong and I don't know, I tell you I don't know, Tucker. A lot of these things I really under a lot of careful consideration, really a lot of deep meditation, thinking about this topic. What I think is very problematic. I'm so glad to have this opportunity to go this far to to be able to talk for this long now. Is that really the IPCC product is actually substandard? Of course, they have a different mandate. Their their mandate is political, right? To provide policy, we understand that. But how many people really understand that pure science doesn't support anything they say? I mean, in the beginning of this COP28 meeting, the chairman or this guy from UAE, United Arab Emirates, the chairman, I don't know his name, Sultan Al Jaber or Jaber or something, he was saying that there's no scientific reasoning to say that we should face out fossil fuels. He's right, but then he back off because of all this. <laughs> everybody is like hurt mentality. Everybody is doing the mad thing. Everybody, science is not about that. They all agree now. They all agree to face out, right? For some kind of agreement. You know, that everybody declare that they're going to do that, that they're going to face out. I don't even know how, actually. Why? Why are you doing this? And then one of the claims is that they're going to triple the amount of solar and wind power. That is a sad story. You know, of the amount that we spend that we can document, some three three point six trillion dollars. They spent almost two trillion dollars on solar and wind power over the last I don't know five ten years or so. And then what they did is that they spent more of the money two trillion on solar and wind. And solar and wind can only account for only three percent of the world power, eighty five percent from fossil fuel, as you can see, hydropower and nuclear. Nuclear is another puzzle. I checked with all my nuclear expert friends. That been working for years on nuclear power. Nuclear power is one of the saddest story. I believe that we actually have almost a solution in hand. Not not the not the fusion, of course. It's the you know the the fast reactor or the good generation of the of nuclear power. Peaceful use of that won't even generate nuclear weapon. We can do all of that technology. The only thing barrier is red tapes. Environmentally scared of radiation. All these other problem. We almost have all of that in. In hand, the power can last. One estimate shows that if we were to use it at the demand of that by 2050, we can have enough power for 2,700 years. That's far more than any of the fossil fuel can promise. And then, and we are still not doing it. We are not doing. America is so far behind now. We are. We we just make one in Georgia, one of the nuclear plant that is so overcost because of all the red tape. That is so embarrassing. Their numbers. I mean. It costing a thousand or two thousand times even more than what Korea and you know even Korea now is is a major guy who make this nuclear power plant for for different any country who wants to do it right I mean Korea India they are making at much cheaper cost and uh, the the design French design are the best right French they are doing that and we're not doing it China of course left and right doing that but we're not doing anything all we try to tell you that we're going to shut off fossil fuel. Increase solar and wind? Are you jo- joking? Even three times more will be nine <laughs> percent. I don't know. Can you turn on your 
your your light only nine percent of them. You should shut all this light off now. You're overusing it, and it destroys the the actual environment. Exactly, wind farms. This is the kind of a farms. very bad incentive that they don't realize. It's about this kind of people that is so out of their mind, in my view, that they really should be cautious. Somebody should just ping on their head. Guys, don't 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 keep saying those things. You better think twice, or consult somebody that knows something that is honest. You know. You spent 31 years at Harvard. Would you be able to say this out loud at Harvard? Actually, back then I also didn't care, but、uh, most of the time I get called into the director's office, this and that. They always trying to tell, oh, why are you saying that? Why are you saying this? I say, well, I'm a scientist. I should say whatever I want to say. Not only that, the problem in when I was at Harvard, part of the reason I quit. As I try to explain, is about job requirement, but another one is a bit of censorship. I can only do certain thing. I cannot do certain thing. Like I, I would never be able to write paper on COVID nineteen. I would never be able to work work、uh, on, let's say, environmental air pollution issues. You know, like you know, so called NOx and SOx and all these other things, or mercury and things like that. I have a lot. I study a lot on those issues because I personally are concerned. So I dig into the literature. One thing after another, basically because I sleep very little, so I really do a lot of thing. I flip every rock, pebbles, anything you want. So I study a lot. I produce a result that is good enough that can be making a lot of scientific, but I never publish them because they simply won't allow. So, they wouldn't allow you. Yes, it's about a matter of allowing because they say it doesn't fit the theme of the Center for Astrophysics. So I don't want to talk back about the institution, but it is the finest astrophysics institution in the world. In terms of instrument building, in terms of technology, we can produce the best. You know, you often look at the the X-ray picture of the sun. Those are from very fine camera that we build that with multi-coding layers. Because the X-ray, they they come in very slowly and then they they're gonna diffuse, come out. But we make very fine way to to catch them so they can come out. So the image are crystal clear. You can see all the structure on the sun. It's made by my center. They they are they are good scientists. Except that when it comes down to a larger picture of science, shh, shh, don't say this, don't say that, this and that, and then all of that. This is why even at Harvard, I quit taking money from NASA and NSF, all these other places in 2004 because I'm beginning to think that science being so unaccountable, funded by taxpayer, that all these people are, it's so unconscionable. So I personally chose that. That is nobody to blame but myself. But I chose to take only from. Foundation who are willing to give me money, right? So I wrote those kind of proposal and then got to go through the director's office, this and that, right? I have a very very happy and fruitful career. Everybody can look up my publication list; is very long, and not only that, it's not the number that counts; it's the quality of the paper. I always want to remind people: I don't like talking about how many thousands of paper you write, this and that. It's not important. Which paper that is really important for certain issues? That's important. That you, if you are able to show that, that's good. That's what I mean. All my papers are basically under a lot of this serious, serious thinking and serious evaluation, checking and rechecking before I would care to write about anything. Because you don't want to write anything that's wrong tomorrow. <laughs> you、of、want to, something that can write. But science is basically garbage can now. These scientific papers, I categorically would even make this statement. I would make the statement that about eighty to ninety percent of the paper published in so-called climate science today should not be published. But everybody have NSF grant. Everybody have all this grant. You see how the inflation goes. You know, just like the other、yes. day, you hear that、uh, Yale University, you know, a large part of it, 
Large, most of the students on, on uh, 2022 or something all got grade A grade, you know, grade A, they diluted the grade. But Harvey Rich assured me that in medical sciences and heart sciences, Harvey Rich is the professor at Iowa University. He teach in the medical school. So he said, no, not true. So that, that, he tried to assure me he has quality. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not in his class, but Harvey, not in any other class, right? Anyway. So I want to ask you, this is a kind of last topic, which is not related sure, to this, sure. but we talked about it off the air, and I think it's really interesting. You were telling me that you see God or evidence of God in math. Well, can you explain what you were saying? Or maybe I misread what you were saying. No, 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 you did not. Uh, I mean, I I have been closer and closer to God in the sense that because it takes me a long time, I'm rather rebellious. You know, I have to say, damn it, God, you got to prove it to me. Show it to me, buddy. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, I'm sorry to anybody. <laughs> no, no. no offense. But I really say it in that way. You know, you talk to yourself in a sense. But... In many, many moments in history of physics or mathematics, things come out. You see, mathematics, you know, is this very pure world that it seems to have no connection to yes, real world physics. That's right. It's true. It's complex number. It's one of them. It's, but it appears in quantum mechanics, right? It's so beautiful. But one of the things that sometimes you see in the equation is so amazing. When you formulate, oh, maybe it's not right. Maybe it's this and that. Maybe, you know, you doubt yourself. But one of the most beautiful equations was the one that derived by Paul Dirac. It's a professor at Cambridge University, but he retired in Florida, by the way. He, he died in Florida, Tallahassee. Uh, I mean, it's a refuge for him because he doesn't like to talk. He would sit there for five days, he don't <laughs> talk. One day, all of a sudden, he talked. But anyway, he formulated, the, he's a beautiful man. He, you know, Paul Dirac, he formulated this relativistic equation of, uh, for electrons. But in one of the equations, the solution come out to be a negative sign. Not only that, there's a square root involved, so there's strange behavior. There's a negative sign in law, but it has, has the exact property, like an electron and all that stuff. How come? Everybody say, you're crazy, you're stupid, this and that, right? <laughs> he is, he's not even wait. He didn't, no sweat, buddy. He just say, I am right. Many years later, a few years later, it is shown in Caltech by Carl Anderson to show there's actually such a thing called positron. You know, the opposite, the brothers of uh, electron. That's such a thing. And, and then if you ask yourself, how is it possible? Right? That's something, this is just out of, out of nowhere. Where does this thing come from? And then in mathematical sciences, there's a lot of things like this, like ge geometry. There's a, an even more famous thing about in geometry is called Kalabi Yao Manifold that related to string theory. This thing was basically a revisit of Einstein general relativity equation. Asking itself, whether is it possible to have close curvature in space-time that you actually don't require even gravity to be there. And they show that Kalabi was trying to prove this Yao, Xingdong Yao is one of the great mathematicians, right? He's at Harvard, but he retired, now he go to China, right? <laughs> he was the one who tried to disprove this thing, but he turns out to be true. That is true that you can have close curvature in space-time that without gravity even. So that added even more rich in this world, that from mathematics to real world, we already have in our hard time understanding Einstein, and this guy added even more. And his discovery was in the 70s and things like that, you know. So there's so many examples and incidents like this. Just have to tell you that you have to bow down. You have to occasionally take a deep breath, you know. There may be some ever presence of these forces, these forces that allow us to illuminate our life. And I tell you, God has given us this, all this light 
that tell us that we have to follow the light and do the best we can, rather than every day devouring planet Earth, saying that we are the Satan, we are the evil people. You know, these people are constantly trying to, you know, make all of us a lesser human being. I would never allow them anyway. So, good luck, you know, for those people like Al Gore and all that who think that they're high and mighty, right? And trying to always, always lecture us on, on got to cut down on fossil fuel because we're going to hurt the planet Earth. I say, Al Gore, do you ever think twice? How, who are you to, to think that you can actually try to save the planet Earth even? Because they always use the word, I'm trying to save the planet Earth. I don't know who gives them the right to save the planet Earth. Same with this experiment that they're trying to do, by the way. The experiment to say that we must cut down CO2 emission. I told you CO2 is good for, you know, for life. Because I asked Elgor, indeed, when I asked Elgor the question in UC Santa Barbara, is what? Is that CO2 is gas of life? Who give you the audacity to cut down this? Then aren't you, are you going to be responsible for the ecological and humanitarian, all this crisis? Even we know rising CO2 affect even plants. Oh no, especially food production, right? Maybe not exact number we know, but it does positively, right? We have technology to help it, better seed, better all this fertilization, all this other thing. But who gives them the idea to do that, to cut down it? Because it's, it's generally going to be good for life because you have to push them around because nobody should give them the authority. So far, I don't think anyone can answer that question for me. So I tell them to please bow down to God. Really answer to that question first before you do anything else. Because it's ridiculous for them to keep to claim that they have the upper moral and ethical high ground to try to prescribe everybody to live in certain conditions that they choose. But they themselves don't follow the rules. And <laughs> they tell us to take a bus. Elgo always tell even tell people to take a bus, Elgo. My God, I say, Elgo, you take a bus from Tennessee to Massachusetts, I'll be waiting for you down there. Please. <laughs> I mean, this guy is just out of the, out of the, out of this world, man. I'm sorry, Elgo, but you can still call me. Can you, um, <laughs> Willie Soon, thank you. But before you go, last thing for, for viewers who want to know more about yes. what you do, can you say once again where they can yes. read it? Please, uh, uh, I hope that uh, I don't disappoint anyone, but please come to series-sign.com. And I want to make one plug for my good friend, Hal Shirtliff. As, uh, as I get older and older, including my own kids, my own kids, three kids has been going to the CAM Constitution at New Hampshire. And we also wanted to invite, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson to come because Vivek Ravaswamy came last, last summer. And because we are a very, very small group, we are a tiny little group called CAM Constitution. So camconstitution.net. We offer basically family kind of a Christian kind of a background, but we don't talk about Christ all the time, but we talk about Bibles, we talk about constitution, we talk about science. So I'm the science instructor. I've been doing that for almost six, seven years now. So I've been doing every year, I will give one or two classes, depends on how many, whatever they want me to do, I'll do. And my own kids came to those things. And then, you know, we play, play music, we have campfire. It's a family event. Used to be that's focused on kids, but this day, I'm sorry, too many adults started to come. <laughs> so we have even people like my good friend, uh, Lord Christopher Moncton from England. He spoke twice. So small little group, but if anybody who thinks that, you know, you have the time and even come and learn what we do here and emulate in your own city and towns and all that, you know, people from Wisconsin, please come. People from California, please come. You know, we have it in New Hampshire every year. 
Every summer we have this camp, and it's a very good thing. So campconstitution.net, okay? And I talked to your friend Vince Allison uh, from Maryland. I also called him before I came. He's uh, one of the good guy, right? Yeah. Amazing. Willie Soon, that was the most interesting conversation I've heard in a long time. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. This is our second Tucker interview with U.S. Congressman Clay Higgins, providing an account of what actually happened on January 6th. Congressman Clay Higgins represents the state of Louisiana's 3rd District in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congressman Higgins is widely regarded as one of the most conservative members of Congress and is a core member of the House Freedom Caucus. He serves on the House Homeland Security Committee and is chairman of the Border Security and Enforcement Subcommittee. He also serves as a senior member on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, where he is investigating corruption at the highest levels of government. The congressman has worked to advance constitutionalist principles and advocate for the people of South Louisiana. He has been recognized as a champion for small government, lower taxes, secure borders, and individual freedoms. Before his election to public office, Higgins spent much of his career dedicated to uniformed service. He is an Army veteran and a law enforcement officer. And he has quite a lot to say about January 6th. It has been exactly three years since January 6th, the events of January 6th, the racist insurrection that shocked this nation to its core more profoundly than anything since Pearl Harbor plus the Civil War. Um, and it has taken a while, honestly, even for people who aren't on the side of the professional liars to realize there's something amiss about what happened that day, not just the response the largest law enforcement mobilization in the history of the United States. That was obviously disproportionate because it wasn't the worst riot that year, not even close. But the day itself, there was something about January 6th that didn't feel right. And hovering over that day has remained the question, to what extent was it a setup? And we still don't really know. But what's interesting is how few people have asked that entirely legitimate question. One of the very few, really one of the only in the United States Congress, is a member called Clay Higgins from Louisiana. And in case you haven't seen this clip, it's worth rewatching. This is from 2022 in a Homeland Security Committee hearing where he asked it just directly of the FBI director. Watch. Did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters on January 6th of 2021? Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when. Even now, because that's what you told us two years ago. May I finish? Uh, About when we do and do not and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, But to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. Did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol on January the 6th prior to the doors being opened? Again, I had to be very careful. It should be a no. Can you not tell the American people? No, we did not have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters position inside the Capitol. Gentlemen's time has expired. You should not read anything into my... 
decision uh, not to share information. Director Ray, gentleman's time has expired. What a sleazy, repulsive little authoritarian liar Chris Ray is. That's obvious when you watch that tape. The sad part is so few tapes like that exist because so few have confronted him directly and asked questions to which the entire country has a right to know the answer, like that one. Clay Higgins did that. Congressman from Louisiana, Louisiana Lafayette, joins us in studio. Congressman, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Tuck. So that was over a year ago that you asked that question, which is a central question, and you asked it as I think is appropriate without any embarrassment at all on behalf of your constituents and the rest of the country. Are you any closer to the answer now? Well, we're closer to being in a position where we can reveal the answers that we already have. Um, much of the evidence that we have compiled from investigative effort and over the, the course of the last couple of years, some officers like my own would have operated in silos of investigative endeavor. Um, have now been able to come together now that we have a Republican majority and we have access to the to the to the staffs of the appropriate investigative committees. And so I sit on the oversight committee and we Republicans run that committee now. And therefore, we control the staff. So when you can magnify the efforts that individual uh, members of Congress have 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 pushed within our own offices, when you can magnify those efforts by the, the skill and the numbers of staff from the committees, you, you you get a lot of evidence reviewed professionally and aligned and assembled into a, essentially a case file. And in, in this case, this is a big file because the 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 involvement of of certain actors you could say deep state actors within the federal government to set the stage for uh, what happened in, in J four, five, and six, and and to um, entrap thousands of Americans from across the country and lure them into this this set stage on J four, five, and six. The people that were involved in that is is is, is quite a large web. So, yes, sir, we do have a great deal of evidence compiled, and we're we're gradually, professionally uh, rolling that evidence out. So you sort of answered the question right there in larger terms. You just said that elements within the federal government, I assume law enforcement, intel, and military, and I'm using your words, lured Americans to Washington into what you called a trap. Yes, sir. So that would, I mean, that's a shocking, and I assume that's a that's a sober conclusion based on the evidence. That's what you're saying. That's that would be my sober assessment as an investigator, and I'm you know I'm quite a, I love my country, and and I I've, I've always been a staunch defender of the thin blue line, and I I would proudly count the FBI amongst that number. It's like brothers to me. So to find that level of uh, of conspiratorial corruption at the highest levels of the FBI uh, has been very troubling to me as a man, as a cop. And and yet, you know, you follow the evidence wherever it leads. And yes, this is what investigators do. So uh, when I asked Christopher Ray that, that question, for instance, I 
I already knew the answer. I had reviewed compelling evidence that the that FBI had assets, human assets, dressed as Trump supporters, inside the Capitol prior to the doors being opened and the masses allowed in. So I, I knew that the FBI was deeply involved. I'd seen evidence even at that time with uh, that the FBI had embedded themselves into various groups online across the country of Americans who were essentially uh, voicing their, their concerns and airing their grievances with each other about COVID oppression. And those Americans were targeted by the FBI, though almost universally Republicans and, and uh, largely Trump supporters, but the FBI worked undercover to infiltrate those conversations and become a significant part of those individual Americans' uh, communications. And when you dig into the evidence that we've we've had revealed through through some criminal cases that I've I've followed and worked with the families of J six uh, political detainees and Americans that have been persecuted for their involvement in, in the Capitol that day. And some of that evidence is shockingly reveals that the, the the FBI agents that were operating undercover within the online groups across the country were were the first ones to plant the seeds of of uh, suggestions of of a of a more radical occupation of the Capitol, and and they were sort of testing the waters of who amongst that group would would begin acknowledging that, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should plan for an occupation like that. But if you look at the, the origins of those conversations, they, they were started by the, the FBI undercover guy that was operating inside the group. And then months later, uh, on January 4th, 5th, and 6th, Many of those Americans met for the first time in person when they gathered for the massive rally where American patriots assembled to object to to everything that had happened during 2020, the COVID oppression and the the stunning results of what we believe was a compromise election cycle in November 2020. So Americans gathered at their own capital to to appropriately air grievances and protests at their capital, but embedded amongst their number was an FBI asset that had been working from within their group online for many months. So this was the level of uh, of manipulative effort that the FBI invested into American citizenry and our our assembly online to our, to exercise our rights under the First Amendment to talk to each other about whatever we want to talk about, including the 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 insidious oppressions of COVID that we were suffering across the country. So, and our concerns about where the election was going, the whole mail-in ballot thing, we could see the stage was being set for a compromised election cycle, possibly and. To our horror, that's what happened. So FBI had fingerprints on this thing. 
from for many months prior to J four, five, and six. I want to go back to something you said in the first sentence, which is you have seen evidence, and that spurred your questions to Chris Ray, that there were FBI assets dressed as Trump supporters within the Capitol. So that is proof of entrapment, because of course the federal government could have prevented entry into the Capitol building, aren't that many doors. You work there, you know. But they allowed people in on purpose to entrap them. That's what that proves, I think. Does it not? Well, it's certainly condemning. It's another piece of the of the strategy that the that the government employed to sort of complete the entrapment of Americans that they had had uh, infiltrated and then prodded and provoked with online with the with the, those original seeds planted of of uh actions like you know what type of gear to wear and 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 just in, in language that incited behavior that could go the wrong way you know pushing actions of of legal and legitimate peaceful protest to an edge where where those Americans would likely not have gone had they not been been you know encouraged by the FBI plant amongst their number that they didn't know was there so by the time it was actually J6 and you had you had uh, masses of Americans assembled outside the capitol um almost like 99.9% peaceful. On the inside, you had FBI assets dressed as Trump supporters that knew their way around the Capitol. Before the doors even opened. Before the doors opened. How are you going to get around the Capitol? You've been there many times. You need a guide to get from whatever door you go in. It's a labyrinth. It's it's a maze inside there. So that's right. So there's no way, just Americans, most of which have never been to the Capitol, there's no way they can come in some random door that gets opened and then get their way directly to the to the statuary or the House chamber or the Senate chamber. It's just not possible. So the 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 FBI assets that were dressed as Trump supporters that were inside the Capitol were there, I believe, and evidence indicates that they were there to to specifically wave in the the Trump supporters that had gathered outside the Capitol and the doors open and they were allowed in and on the inside were, were, Oh, there's some more Trump supporters, but really those were FBI assets, law enforcement assets that knew their way around the Capitol. And they, they waved those guys in, said, come on, follow us. And they, they're the ones that led them on the path directly. How do you think a guy's never been to the Capitol going to, Got to come into the Capitol, all amped up on on emotion, and make his way straight to Nancy Pelosi's office. Come on, it's like I couldn't get it. There's no way. I've been there for seven years. Could come in some random door at the Capitol and make my way to Nancy Pelosi. Everything Pelosi's is unmarked. Office. I mean, those leadership offices are unmarked. So it's, how would it, you know? It's that? confusing That's to right. get around in the Capitol. Every American that has been there knows this. When you go on a tour. You bring your family to D.C., you go through the Capitol. You have to have a guide. And and on January 6th, the guides were FBI assets, the law enforcement assets. 
and they were dressed as Trump supporters. They were positioned inside the Capitol prior to the doors being opened so that the Americans that had assembled outside the Capitol, once allowed in, could be brought directly to the areas where the FBI and the DOJ and the deep state actors knew would be the most uh, the most sort of condemning criminal action of of Americans being a lot being inside the Capitol um, protesting without permit and things. So they knew they were setting the stage for arrest and prosecution. It's such a crime. Who who planned this? Do you think? I think factions plan this. I wouldn't say who, Tucker, because yeah, I don't think there was one person that, that planned this. But I believe the, the faction of uh, establishment liberals within the, the FBI and the Democrat Party and our intelligence services to, to another extent, um, Use their massive powers of surveillance and uh, in and investigative uh, assets that they have across the country: confidential informants, registered informants, non-registered informants, voluntary informants. It's a it's a it's a, a complex web of of FBI assets across the country that can be activated. So if you have authority at some of the highest levels in the FBI, it doesn't take much. The faction within the FBI and within our intelligence services that would coordinate with with the most extreme liberal uh, factions within a Democrat party that were desperate to keep Trump out of office and and you know, worked within the the theater of operations, shall we say, that had been that had been set by the COVID alleged medical emergencies nationwide and millions and millions of mail in ballots. There's no daylight between the the compromised election cycle of November twenty twenty and ultimately what happened on 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 J six. So you ask who planned this this would be the combination of several several of the most extreme liberal anti-trump anti-america first factions that uh that were in positions of authority within our our federal law enforcement organizations and the the democrat party across the country can when you say that there were FBI assets in the crowd, in, in the building beforehand and, and certainly outside, what's the scale of this? Are you talking like 10, 20? No. Um, based upon some very conservative but like hard investigative effort evaluation of, of the numbers, from putting together eyewitnesses and and videos and uh, and affidavit statement and whistleblower statements, 
and uh, court records that have been revealed through individual criminal cases where J6 defendants have been prosecuted and smart attorneys have forced uh, admissions by the DOJ and the FBI, but those admissions have been sealed within the parameter of that criminal case by protective order by the judge, so they, I, I can't share them, but I've seen them. So r- real hard, objective, and conservative um, estimates would, would put the number of FBI assets in the crowd, outside, and working inside at at well over 200. 200? Yeah. Yeah. So you're in law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Before you came to Congress in the military as well. Um, that seemed, that's an extraordinary number. Is it? Well, n- no. When you think about the scope of the operation, if you were going to do this, you would need, you but, would need but that But relative number. to, so like when, I don't know, Minneapolis burned down or when St. John's, the Episcopal Church across from the White House in Lafayette Square was set ablaze and all the Secret Service agents were injured. Were there 200 FBI assets in the crowd among Antifa then? I mean, I, I don't know how many undercover agents the FBI would have in a situation like that. But to, but 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 J six was the was the was the final act prior to arrest and prosecution of of Americans that that were identified as as Trump supporters. I mean, the objective was to. Dis- Destroy the entire mega movement to to forever stain the uh, the patriotic fervor that was associated with with the America First mega movement that had won in 2016 and we believe won again in 2020 and the the establishment uh, on both sides of both major parties were determined to to smash that out of existence, not just by defeating Trump, but by destroying the uh, the reputations of the movement itself, by creating this narrative that it was totally false, uh, but but was heavily pushed that the that mega Republicans, America First Republicans, are somehow a danger to our republic and. A, a domestic terror threat. There's a whole nother story about what the FBI has done to tagging Americans as uh, suspected domestic terrorists and and following us as we travel across the country. But the the bottom line is that uh, 200, as a I, I believe, is a conservative number. First of all, I think there were, there were many more, but. A number that I'm comfortable going on record with is that we believe that there were that there were easily 200 FBI undercover assets operating in the crowd uh, outside the Capitol, embedded into groups that entered the Capitol or provoked entry of the Capitol, and working with. FBI assets that would have included Metro Police and Capitol Police that would dress as Trump supporters inside the Capitol because those were the guys that knew their way around the Capitol. So 
given the scope of the operation and the number of of doors where uh, entry was allowed or e- even encouraged, um, then the and the number of people that were actually outside the Capitol and it entered, we believe two hundred is a conservative number. Yes, sir. It's it's shocking what you're saying. It confirms everyone's worst suspicions about this. It's clearly true. Um, did you come across any evidence that the, the DOD, the military, either Defense Intelligence Agency or National Guard or any part of the U.S. military played any role in this at all? I have not seen that. I've, I've heard the echoes of that suspicion, and I have, I have observed um, circumstantial evidence that that has been presented to me that I've that I have reviewed, but to but to me, um, it does not rise to the level of, that I would call um, actionable from an investigative perspective. So there's some there was some some suspicion, but in 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 law enforcement, the thresholds you're looking across is reasonable suspicion. That would prompt a, a criminal investigation, and then the next threshold is probable cause, which you need for arrest. And then of course, in our system, finally, the last threshold is is uh, is conviction and guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So, the, I I did review evidence, Tucker, re, regarding a, some suspicions of military involvement in some way, but and I and I've. I have reviewed some of that evidence that that has been that I've been able to get my hands on, and I do not think that the the military was uh, was involved, not at the level, most certainly not at the level of the of the FBI, and uh, over the course of all of 2020, and then on J four, five, and six. The FBI working in coordination with other law enforcement assets that that they roped into the operation right. from Metro PD from DC and and uh, the Capitol Police was sort of uh, sort of tricked into participating with the with what the FBI had been staging for you know ten months. It just I mean, if you take three steps back. This is not democracy. So the federal agencies serve under the oversight of the elected president and then un- under the oversight of the elected Congress. Their elected people get to make the decisions. You have a Republican president. You now have a Republican Congress. And neither one can get a straight answer from the FBI. No, no one has any control of the FBI. You're describing a government within a government. Well, in America... A question becomes reasonable men would 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 ask when we face a crisis like this, who investigates the investigator right and the answer in america is is congress so we we have the responsibility to investigate through the appropriate committees which would we're certainly we're certainly doing that now that we have a republican majority in control of the committees. But well, we don't have the power to arrest. We can we can give criminal referrals based upon our investigative efforts, but we have to have a DOJ that's receptive to the criminal referrals. 
So we, we've hit quite a, a brick wall, have we not? It, constitutionally, it, we, we have the responsibility to investigate objectively. And, and, and anyone that knows me knows that's exactly what I'm, I'm pursuing. I do not have, I'm not trying to create a crime to fit a narrative to blame on the FBI. I'm following the evidence, and, and to my horror, it implicates our FBI at the highest level and a, and a, a, a conspiracy within our government at the highest level to create the, the, uh, to set the stage for a compromised election cycle in 2020 and then the, the, the actions that took place on J four, five and, and six. And then the, the criminal investigation, arrest, and prosecution of Americans that they were able to entrap and document with the thousands of cameras that were operating that day and use that evidence that they knew they were setting up to investigate, arrest, and prosecute the Americans that they had entrapped. So Congress can investigate these things, and we, and we are, and we will reveal these horrific truths, and we will have criminal referrals. But until you have a, 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 a president running the executive branch that will clean house at the DOJ and FBI at the highest levels and put American patriots in place that will, be, that will act upon the criminal referrals that, that Congress provides, then none of those guys are going to get arrested because they're not going to arrest themselves. And we don't have arrest authority. I'm a little surprised and don't expect you to be critical of your colleagues in the Republican conference. But, I mean, they do control the House. Impeachment is a thing. Chris Ray is still the FBI director. I watched Republicans, some of whom I know, cheer the murder of Ashley Babbitt, who was an unarmed woman, less than 5'5", five, five, uh, by Michael Byrd. They were on Michael Byrd's side. And it, I have to say, for a lot of Republican voters, and I count myself among them, very clarifying. If you're cheering Ashley Babbitt's murder, shooting women now, that's okay because she likes Trump. And there are Republicans who are like, yeah, I was happy. Like a lot of them thought that. What the hell? Yeah, that was, and it, it made me sick. Me too. You know, I'm, it, there's a, a great responsibility when you, when you wear a badge in America. I mean, think about it, to be, to be the, to be the designated servant of your community that has that has the the authority to uh to deny the freedom of a fellow american in the land of the free like that's a heavy responsibility so the the escalation of of force is it must be appropriate in order to effect a lawful arrest and and a a bad a bad shoot is the worst thing that an officer can possibly be involved in in his in his career. It's, it's, you know, we it's 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 the thing of nightmares for for good police officers. So to take what was what was, from a law enforcement perspective was clearly a bad shoot because there's some basic rules you just cannot violate. You have to attempt to affect an arrest before you can go to deadly force. 
there was there was no attempt to arrest Ashley Babbitt. There were there were officers on the other side of the window she was climbing through. There were officers on the interior side of the window she was climbing through. There was no indication there had been they this had been going on for an hour and there was there was no reports on the radio anywhere else of of gunfights. So there was no reason at that point to expect that Ashley Babbitt or anybody else in the, in the crowd was going to produce a firearm and start firing on police officers. Why? Because it had not happened. So that's part of the totality of circumstance that a police officer is responsible for knowing. We stay in constant communication with our radios. We know what's going on. Uh, that officer that, that, that pulled that trigger which shot a a American woman who was clearly in a in like a physically compromised position, climbing through the broken glass of a of a window is not, you know, it's not like she just stepped into the cage at MMA and she was ready to fight. She's climbing through a window draped in a flag. There's police officers on the other side of the window. There's police officers on the interior side of the window. So you have plenty enough officer presence if you want to arrest that woman and by all means pull it through the window you know put flex cuffs on her and throw her in the corner we'll get to you later ma'am we're kind of busy right now but that's what you do you'd have grabbed that woman and pulled her through flex cuffed her and threw her in the corner or handed her back to somebody that could pull her back you know from that front line right there so i understand that very well understand officers have to make split second decisions, but you never, you never make a decision to use lethal force unless it's absolutely called for and required. If you're losing a fight, attempting to effect an arrest, then, then yeah, you know, if the, if, if there's, if, if the officer's life is in danger and is all by himself, but, this never should be a circumstance where you just pull the trigger on a woman climbing through a window that's clearly unarmed. There's no evidence of gunplay from the crowd that she's coming from. You got officers on both sides of where she is. If you got to arrest her, then by all means, arrest her. You know, to put flex cuffs on her and and move on so you know she so can handle the next person trying to come through the window. But she don't shoot her. So. That was and if a bad you do, there's an invest a real was, investigation. It was cheered. Yep. Why do you think that was? And there's this in, there's this insanity that has taken hold in the in the the minds and hearts of many otherwise reasonable American citizens, where they 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 hate Trump so much, like they they're so deeply embedded and they they've sold their souls to the establishment that. When we had an America first president and and he and he like stopped the uh the military industrial complex forward momentum and and he and he began restoring power to individual members of Congress and restoring individual rights and freedoms and sovereignty of the state and he took away the actions of the cartels and 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 brought this uh this real common sense approach to the executive branch and was leading our country in that beautiful direction. This was, 
interfering with the business model of the establishment. So many career politicians on both sides of the aisle, and I, you know, I don't like those guys, man. I'm not one of them. And <laughs> I, I, I serve my country in Congress, but I, I don't consider myself a politician by any means. I'm a servant to we the people. Some of these guys, man, they pop out of the womb to be to be politicians. They're groomed their whole life, you know, to be a a career politician. And those are the ones that had this instinctive cheer for something really bad happening to a Trump supporter. You know, they their true color showed in that moment, and it was an ugly color. Yeah, that's it. We shouldn't be shooting women. Number one. Um, I couldn't agree more. So where where does this go from here? You have this corpus of information. It sounds like it's definitive. When does the public see the detail? And what's the process after that? It's a good question. So evidence from criminal investigations by nature is rather secretive. But there is a, uh, a tremendous compilation of data that I think should be made completely available to the public and that's the digital files from from j4 5 and 6 this is where uh, speaker mike johnson can be a champion for for that will be remembered for throughout history as the speaker of the house that fully released unredacted uh digital files from J4, 5, and 6, completely to the American people. And within that data is full truth. And and the American people is the only staff large enough to, you know, frame by frame, go through 80,000 hours of digital evidence. Nobody has a staff big enough to do that. But we can crowdsource it to the American people. So you ask, when will this evidence be released? I've I've been encouraging Speaker Johnson, as I did Speaker McCarthy, to, by God, man, release this data to the American people. Why won't won't they? I believe Speaker Johnson will. But but Mike is is, is quite a skilled constitutionalist attorney himself and he's a very measured patient faithful man so i i have i extend trust to to speaker johnson when he says that it's his intention to fully release the the call the j6 tapes but really it's digital evidence is more than it's more than just video evidence it's it's a lot it's you know, radio transcripts, the whole thing. Um, I I believe my, Speaker Johnson knows that this is a significant uh, duty that he must he 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 must perform for the American people. It's a moment in history where where you know I believe our Lord and Savior has placed him in that in that position of service to the country, and he has a responsibility to to fully release that data. And then the American people will see for themselves what some of us have already learned to our horror 
be true. Congressman Higgins, thank you very much. Our third interview is with Jeffrey Epstein's brother, Mark, discussing the Jeffrey Epstein suicide lie. Mark Epstein ends the interview saying he did not want his brother to be accused of suicide. The sad fact is there is no evidence Jeffrey actually did commit suicide, but those in powers cannot let that information out. There were a large list, and is a large list, of people who were relieved when the Epstein matter was stopped from exploding by the suicide line. No one in power wants to hear what Mark knows, but Tucker Carlson wants to know, and Tucker wants us to know also. It's interesting to learn who Jeffrey Epstein hung around with while he was alive. People who flew on his airplane, people who stayed on his private island in the Caribbean, those who had dinner at his home off Fifth Avenue in New York. And to some extent, those names are coming out, not all of them. But we know a lot of the people who are in Jeffrey Epstein's life, and we have for several years now. But on another level, that whole story seems like a bit of a sideshow because it doesn't answer the main mysteries surrounding Jeffrey Epstein's life or death. And there are three of them, almost none of which is ever discussed in the media. The first is who did Jeffrey Epstein work for? What did Jeffrey Epstein do for a living and on whose behalf? We don't know. The second question is where did all the money come from? Hundreds of millions of dollars that passed through his hands over many years. And where is it now? We don't know that either. And the third question may be the most pressing of all, which is, what happened to Jeffrey Epstein? On August 10, 2019, he was found dead in the Federal Correction Facility in Manhattan, in one of the most secure places in the world. Did he kill himself, as the government has claimed ever since, or was he murdered? Well, the overwhelming evidence suggests that he was in fact murdered, and that the U.S. government, including the Attorney General of the United States, covered up that murder. These are the questions that matter most, and they're exactly the ones not being addressed in the news media. Why is that? We decided to speak to someone who has insight into this question, and that is Jeffrey Epstein's only surviving relative. His name is Mark Epstein. He was Jeffrey Epstein's brother, separated by 18 months. He's a successful real estate developer in New York, and he's very concerned for his own safety. So the interview that follows is one that you will listen to rather than see. Mark Epstein refused to appear on camera, but we think what he has to say is worth hearing. Here it is. Do you think your brother killed himself? Not now. No. When I first heard he was dead from suicide, I had no reason to doubt it, so I accepted that. But then after the autopsy and after Bill Bob made that asinine statement, I said, this was not a suicide. Um, but when you first heard the news, you were not, you thought it was a possibility that he killed himself. Yeah, I accepted it as a fact. I heard it on the news. The government didn't notify me, as they said. I heard it on CNN in the morning of the 10th. And you're his only survivor. You're the only surviving relative. Yes, yes. He has no children and our parents are gone. And there's no other siblings. When did you start to think that he did not kill himself? Well, after the autopsy and the... Both pathologists, the city pathologist and Dr. Barden, came out of the autopsy and they said, this this doesn't look like a suicide. It looks more like a homicide. So what did you do then? Well, okay, I figured we'd have to look into this and see what's going on. Were you shocked that he might have been killed? Uh, It came as a surprise, yeah. 
So as his only surviving relative, what did you do to find out what happened to him? Well, I started to inquire about what took place. You know, the Justice Department uh, was supposedly investigating. The initial death certificate uh, said pending uh, when it said cause of death, which means pending further investigation. Yes. So, but then a few days later, it was declared a suicide by the chief pathologist who, who was not at the autopsy. And uh, the questions became what investigation was done in such a short period of time to make her determine it was a suicide, or was she basing it on Bill Barr's statement? And who, who was the chief pathologist who made that declaration? Uh, Dr. Roman. That was the, the pathologist who was there. No, no, no. That was, uh, oh, Samson. Barbara Samson was the chief pathologist. Dr. Right. Roman did the actual autopsy with Dr. Barnard. So Barbara Samson is the person who declared it officially a suicide, and she was not, as you said, at the autopsy. I mean, she was not present for it. Correct. And, you know, when they call it a suicide, they stop investigating. Because if there's a suicide, there's really nothing to investigate. Right. If it's a suicide, because somebody killed themselves, case closed. So that's how they can just sort of cover it up. They, never, they never did an investigation. They didn't, never interviewed the EMTs that were called to the jail. They never interviewed the hospital personnel where his body was, was shipped. They, they, I can't get any answers as to what investigation was done. When I met with the Justice Department people, a few months after the death, every question I asked was answered by saying, after a thorough investigation, we determined it was a suicide. That was the, it was like them pleading the fifth. I got the same answer to every question I asked. So, um, do you have, have, did you speak to Barbara Sampson, the official who ruled this a suicide? No, I haven't been able to get to her. Oh, she never called you? No. So, in, um, in her public explanation, she has been asked about this. We tried to reach out to her. She refused to speak to us. Um, for reasons we don't understand. Uh, but in her official explanation, she suggested that she ruled it a suicide, effectively overruling the judgment of the people who actually performed the autopsy, because your brother had attempted suicide previously. Yeah, but that's been shown to be false. Uh, you can listen to David Schoen, his attorney, on the podcast, the Crime Waves podcast. He explains that Jeff was attacked by his cellmate. But he didn't want to report it as such because he was afraid of retaliation. Um, but every news account of his initial injuries in the, in the weeks before his death said that he had tried to kill himself in a, in a cell. He was found in fetal position on the floor after a failed suicide attempt, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, once somebody says that, then everyone picks up the same story. And then it becomes, you know, the truth just because it's been repeated so many times. But the fact is he was not... He did not attempt suicide that first time. So if he didn't try and kill himself the first time, then the medical examiner had no basis to declare this a suicide. Exactly, exactly. Plus there's reasons why he wouldn't kill himself then. He had a hearing scheduled for, uh, to appeal the bail decision coming up in a few days. And uh, the bail was being uh, increased. So there's a chance he could have got bail. Even as unpalatable as that might have been to some people, you know, in the United States you're entitled to bail under certain, certain conditions. But, um, you know, so I could see if he went for the hearing for bail and it was denied, then I can see him taking himself out if he didn't want to spend a year in jail waiting for a trial. Yeah. But not a few days before. That makes no sense. In all the, in your conversations with him and in your conversations with the people who were in contact with him in the final weeks of his life, 
Was there any indication at all that he was suicidal at any point? No, I had no conversations with him once he was arrested. I, yes. I spoke to him the day before he was arrested. And he actually called me from Paris, just the usual, you know, how you doing kind of phone call. And the next day, his attorneys called me and told me he was arrested. And that was the last time I spoke with him. I didn't yes. speak to him or see him while he was in jail. But having spoken to his lawyers and, and people whom he communicated with from jail, did anybody say that he seemed suicidal? No, everybody was shocked that it was a suicide. Nobody thought he was going to kill himself. Nobody thought he would do that. So what's interesting is that the Attorney General of the United States at the time, Attorney General Barr, uh, said publicly and then wrote in his memoir that he had concluded conclusively that this was a suicide based on two pieces of evidence. One, the medical examiner, the, the person who performed the autopsy declared it a suicide, which is a lie. That didn't happen. And two, because he had viewed the videotape at the entrance to the tier, to the cell block where your brother was being held. What do you make of that explanation? Well, when, when I heard Barr's statement that he said he personally saw the videotape and he concluded it was a suicide because nobody went in or out, I, that's when it hit me that he's covering this up because there's two sort of fallacies in that. One, I thought, why is the Attorney General of the United States, who I imagine to be a busy guy, why is he personally watching the videotape? Couldn't he have two people in his office watch the videotape and say, hey, Bill, nobody went in or out? You know, wouldn't that suffice? And two, to assume that somebody could get to that door, go inside, you know, kill somebody, get out completely undetected is just ridiculous because I believe there are six levels of security right. before you get to that door. So to assume that somebody could do it that way is crazy. And any third-rate investigator will tell you that, you know, there was anywhere from 7 to 14 people on the other side of that door, on the tier, that could have killed somebody. Right. And I had been told from another source, I've been getting a lot of information from all sources, that cell doors were left unlocked that night. I don't know how many cell doors or whose cell doors, but if, if cell doors were left unlocked, then somebody could have went into Jeff's cell, killed him, went back into their cell, undetected. Now, in the Justice Department uh, report, it says that from three cells, you could see Jeff's cell door. But if you look at the photographs of the tier, there's tiny windows in the cell doors. So in order to see Jeff's cell door from another cell, you'd have to be standing at that window inside the other cells in the middle of the night looking towards Jeff's cell. And if somebody crept low beneath the height of that window, you wouldn't see them. So the fact that, you know, to say that he could be seen from three other cells and they didn't see anything, well, chances are the other prisoners were sleeping in those cells if they had nothing to do with it. So again, it, it, it's just like a cover-up line. Right. So in other words, the Attorney General said that nobody moved <clears throat> on to the cell block, according to the videotape, but that is irrelevant because if your brother was murdered, he was almost certainly murdered by someone who was already on the cell block. Exactly. Right. So... Um, <clears throat> Given that, and it's obvious and logical when you think about it for about 10 seconds, the identities of the other inmates on that cell block are critical. Yes. Your brother was alone in his cell. Right. Um, so any one of those inmates could have killed your brother. Do we know who they were? No, I can't find out who they were. It's, uh, there was anywhere, there were seven other cells, each with one or two people in them. Yes. Which means there's either anywhere from seven to 14 people other than my brother on the tier that right. night. I don't know who they are. or I, I know one, that guy, Tataglioni, who was Jeff's cellmate for a while. Uh, he was there, and he was there for a long time. So uh, if, if 
Jeff was killed, it's a possibility that somebody was planted in there. Cell doors were left unlocked. And then, from what I understand, a number of prisoners were transferred off of that tier after the death. So if somebody was planted, he killed Jeff, and a day or two later he's transferred out, and he disappears into the ether. I don't know who the prisoners were. I'd like to find out who they are, and where are they now? So there's, of course, a record of this. These are federal inmates in a facility run by the Department of Justice, the Bureau of Prisons overseen by the Department of Justice. So it's not like nobody knows who they were. No, they have to have a record. Right. Sure. But they will not release that to you. I haven't been able to get anything. Right. Let's go down um, the chain of documents that might explain this mystery. Um, so the first would be the records of the first responders, the EMTs, who arrived at the scene and moved your brother's body from the cell to... No, that's what I had thought, but when I spoke to an EMT, when they got to the prison, Jeff was already in the infirmary. They, the prison people moved him to the infirmary, which they were not supposed to do, because when he was found, he was clearly dead. The autopsy showed he was dead for at least two hours before he was found. So at that point, they're supposed to leave the body and call the medical examiner's office so they can come, take photographs, do the initial testing, whatever they do when they find a dead body. But that wasn't done. They moved him to the infirmary. And uh, They moved his corpse to the infirmary but notified nobody else? Well, a 911 call was made to get the EMTs, and we can't get a copy of the 911 call, which is, you know, we hear 911 calls for all sorts of other cases. This one seems to be missing. Uh, when they got there, he was in the infirmary, and he was clearly dead because, like I said, he had been dead for two hours. And there was a photograph of him being wheeled out of the prison where he was intubated, you know, squeezing an air bulb to try yes. to get, you know, so I was questioning why are they trying to put, you know, pump in to a, into a clearly dead body? You know, were they trying to make it look like he was alive so that he could be declared dead in the hospital? Because what, what I've been told, normally when they find dead bodies in the prisons, they want to ship them to the hospital so they're declared dead in the hospital. Because like an unwritten rule is nobody dies in prison. They don't want to deal with it. So they ship him to the hospital where he's declared dead. And when I questioned the EMT uh, why they were intubating him, I said because he was dead for at least two hours. Uh, the response I got was, how do you know that? It was a kind of a strange response, but I knew that from the autopsy. So we don't know who moved him out of the cell. No, the, no person has come forward to say, I moved this corpse from the cell no, but, but I was also told that in the infirmary and in the hospital, there was somebody with a handheld video camera all the time running, videotaping everything. Where are those tapes? That's another question. Despite the fact that your brother was dead in his cell and had been dead for two hours. At, somebody, least, at least two hours. At least two hours. Yeah. Somebody cut off his clothing and redressed the corpse in hospital scrubs in a gown. Yeah, I have a photograph of him uh, in a hospital gown on a gurney in a hospital where, you know, his arms were put through the sleeves. It's one of those gowns you tie in the back. So the question becomes, you know, who decided to dress a dead body in a hospital gown? Normally they're either in a body bag or covered in it by a sheet. So That's who, bizarre. Yes. And four and a half years later, you have no answers at all on none, any of these questions. None, none. And I've tried to get the, the PCR report, or the ACR report, which is the report that the EMTs fill out on every call they make. It's just their record-keeping system, and these are filed with the fire department. 
and uh, as the video I sent you showed, they have no record of it. So there are essentially no records of what happened at all. There's no videotape. The cameras were broken. The guards who were supposed to be keeping watch were asleep. They were convicted of lying, but then they were pardoned by a judge later, apparently. One still works for the federal government? I believe so, yes. Um, I tried to talk to the guards. They, I couldn't get to them. I tried to contact them through their attorneys, and I couldn't get to them. Um, okay, so then there was famously an investigation into this overseen by the Department of Justice's head investigator. Where is that? Well, they came out with a report you know, a few months ago, and uh, for four years we've been trying to find out what position his body was in when it was found, and we couldn't get an answer to that either. But in the report, it described how he was found. It said that he was in a seated position with his legs extended in front of him, and he was hanging from the top bunk. So if you, if you picture that, you know, uh, basically all of his body weight or most of his body weight was hanging by this noose around his neck or the ligature around his neck. He had some weight on his feet, but the bulk of his 180 some odd pounds was hanging. Uh, and they said when they cut him down or tore him down, his buttocks was an inch or an inch and a half above the ground. Again, which means his body weight was on his neck. Now, if somebody's hanging like that, the, the noose or ligature would, would ride up high on the neck and go high behind your ears to, to where it was tied to. But uh, the autopsy photographs show that the ligature mark on Jeff's neck is in the middle of his neck and, and goes straight back. As if someone put a rope around his neck and strangled him like Carlo in The Godfather in the car. Or the electrical cord to his Or the electrical machine. cord or, or whatever was there. But it doesn't look like the fabric from a bed sheet. So if um, it seems clear just from the photographs right. of his autopsy that he was strangled with, say, a cord, wouldn't you test that cord for his DNA? Yeah, nobody knows, seems to know where that is. Also, the way they said he was hanging, and again, he had to be there for at least two hours. When you die... The blood in your body settles to the, gravity takes the blood down to the lowest parts of your body, and they become blotchy from the uh, blood pooling under the skin. So the back of his legs and his buttocks should have what's called lividity. They should have this blotchiness, like bruising uh, look on the back of his legs and his buttocks. Autopsy photographs show that his legs are clean, clear. So he couldn't have been hanging that way for more than, you know, for two plus hours. He'd have blood pooling in his legs. That's not the case. So did the report explain the discrepancies from the autopsy, that bones in his neck were broken that are not seen in hangings but are seen in strangulations? Those broken bones, are not they're seen in strangulations, but because he had three bones, it's also from a karate chop to the neck will break bones like that. And that seems to be what I've spoken to military people, a preferred way of killing people, is you karate chop them in the neck really hard, you collapse their windpipe, and that disorients them and incapacitates them, and then usually they just break their neck, or you can strangle them. So the, the breaks in his neck are more consistent with a karate chop than a soft, what's called a soft hanging. You know, when you tie something around your neck and you sit down or hang yourself from something soft, like, you know, unfortunately, Robert Williams or Andre, you know, the, uh, Bourdain, was it, who killed himself? Anthony Bourdain. Right, those are soft hangings, as opposed to, 
you know, Brooks in the Shawshank Redemption who stood on a chair and sort of jumped off. That's a hard hanging. That will snap the bones in your neck. But that wasn't what happened with Jeff. So Dr. Michael Baden, who participated, was present at the autopsy, um, has participated in over a thousand autopsies of prison deaths. I have never seen three fractures like this in a suicidal hanging. Going over over a thousand jail hangings, suicides, in the New York City State Prisons over the past 40, 50 years, no one had three fractures. His fairly firm conclusion is that this was not a suicide. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. He was holding off on that determination, pending determination of how the body was found, which we finally, now that they say the way the body was found, it just only shows that it was not that way. The autopsy shows it's not that way, which further convinced Dr. Bodden that this was not a, a hanging, not a suicide. So um, here's what we wind up with at the end of all this. We wind up with a high-profile inmate in the most secure federal facility in the country's largest city who was somehow murdered, clearly with the knowledge of the Justice Department and the Attorney General of the United States lies about it, which he did, and there's no reason to do that except to cover up the crime. So what, is that, what does that tell us about this? Oh, it's a scary thought that you could be killed in prison by the government. Yeah. Because, again, that, my life would have been a lot easier if he committed suicide. I could have put it behind me. But uh, it's, obviously, it's obvious at this point in time that he was, it was not a suicide. And so it means somebody killed him. So who killed him and why? Right. So in talking to all the people around him or people who were connected with him in one way or another in the final weeks of his life, have you detected a fear in those people in talking about this? Uh, no, not really. I don't think they're fearful of anything. I was the one getting the death threats, not, not them. I don't think they did. Why were you getting death threats? Well, when Jeff died, people tried to link me to his activities in some way, shape or form. Uh, Again, I, I had not seen Jeff for seven years prior to his death. We were in communication. We spoke, we emailed, but we lived two different lives. So I didn't know his inner circle and he didn't know mine. Uh, but people tried to link us, tried to link me to his activities. And I was, getting, I was in contact with the, with the FBI and the New York Police Department about the death threats. And I had, at times, had armed guards. When I went to the autopsy, I had armed guards with me. To protect myself from whom from whoever killed jeff but anyone who could murder someone in a federal detention facility obviously has a lot of power yeah well i was trying to protect myself as best as i could yeah hmm. do you fear for i notice you're not appearing on camera you've asked not to appear on camera yeah i just i don't want to be recognized i travel a lot and there's no need for me this is not about me this is about jeff's death did you have any inkling at all that your brother was involved in anything that might get him killed by a government? No, no. Like I said, I wasn't involved with his day-to-day -day life, you know, and, uh, you know, his troubles he had with the charges with the girls was from the early two, you know, 2006 is when he first got into trouble and he uh, spent time in jail for that. Well, that's, that, that's a question that's occurred to me. I mean, he went through all this, whatever you think of it, um, and then he was charged again for the same 
for the same things, effectively. Right. I mean, from what I understand, that was going... He had a non-prosecution agreement with the federal government on that when he made his plea deal. Uh, So he believed he was safe from further prosecution. And then he flew home from Paris in July, and they arrested him on the same charges. And I believe his defense was going to be, well, hey, you know, I have a non-prosecution agreement with the federal government. And supposedly they say, well, that was like the Southern District or some area. Well, as far as I know, we have one federal government. And if you make a deal with the federal government, it covers the entire country. Has it occurred that maybe the point of rearresting him on the same charges was to get him into a facility where he could be killed? Uh, you know, I, I've, I've shied away from speculating about all of this. You know, I, I try to stick with the facts, but that's a possibility. Um, do you think... Other governments might have been involved in this, not just the U.S. government? Uh, I, I would, on the surface, say no. I don't see why. I mean, again, I don't know what he was doing day to day. So, you know, again, that's speculation, which I don't want to do. But I don't think so. You know, on the surface, I don't see why. Um, what information are you still seeking about his death? Well, who were the prisoners on that ward that night? How long were they there for? Now, if somebody was on that ward for, you know, a long time, like his roommate, then, you know, obviously he, they weren't planted there, you know, two years ago to kill Jeff then. So who was transferred onto that ward in the week or two before he was killed? And, and where are they now? Where were they transferred to? Were these real prisoners or was it a plant? Have you asked the inspector general at the Department of Justice? We asked all these questions, yes, way back when. And, and we get no end. Yeah, after a thorough investigation, we've determined it was a suicide. But no one's given you any details. After a careful investigation, we've determined it was a suicide. What's, That's what I was getting from them. I'm doing to you what they were doing to me. What's your next move? Well, I'm still trying to find the information. I have you know, FOIAs out to try to get the medical reports, to try to get the 911 call. And just to get people thinking about this. People shouldn't, like you said, sh- people shouldn't uh, be complacent with the fact that somebody was killed in a federal prison under federal protection. Yeah, and officials at the very highest levels are lying about it. Yeah, and people should be aware of that. Whether we ever figure out exactly what happened, I don't know. But uh, I don't want people to think he committed suicide because that's not the case. Mark Epstein, thank you very much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Radio 5G, a production of CosmicReality.com. Thank you for listening.